And what does it what does it say on the screen? Oh shoot, that says Art House Drive-In? Splittooth Media's latest film podcast? Aren't we the the co-hosts of that podcast? Are you Robert? Are you T? Oh snap! Is that is that our faces up in the sky? Uh, looking pretty good, looking pretty good. I guess we'll be coming back here pretty uh, pretty often then, at least every week. At least every week, talking about at least one film or two short films, or I guess we'll be going on a on a journey through the world of our house film. I guess. Yeah, that's pretty. That's gonna be pretty cool. <laughs> Come along, everybody. More room in the drive-in. I don't know how we got here, but I love it. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Art House Drive-In. If this is your first time joining us, uh, my name's T. My name's Robert. And today we're going to be delving into... A little, a little bit of horror, and honestly, watching some horror movies got me thinking. Uh, Rob, who do you think you would be in a horror movie setting? Uh, I've been thinking. I'm trying thinking about this a lot because I'm not as familiar with horror as you, but uh, I feel like I would be the person who's immediately suspicious, and when something crazy happens, I would immediately just go into like an anxiety thing where just, I'm running around and opening all the doors and looking under couches and like the kind of like the wild card who maybe disappears and comes back mm-hmm. like halfway through the film or at the end of the film sort of thing. That's who I would like to be. So the shaggy <laughs> you know of the I mean? gang is what I'm hearing. Oh yeah. I would love to be the shaggy of the gang for sure. I yeah, mean, when definitely. you think about it, he always had the right idea. Like don't always. get too close to the ghost. Always have snacks uh hi <laughs> yes. all the time <laughs> all the time yeah well, who would you be um i i don't think i have much to to bring to the table in terms of smarts and i'm definitely not the jock so i think i'd have to be the comedic relief who's either killed off first or like second to last and in this scenario we are being it's it's not just like we're in a horror movie we're being downloaded into a horror movie <laughs> a la <laughs> A la Scooby-Doo and the Cyber Chase. Beautiful movie. Um, if somehow you've been sleeping on this movie, I don't know what you're thinking. Oh, go check out all of the Scooby-Doo catalog. We were just talking about Scooby-Doo and Zombie Island for maybe too long by other people's standards, but not long enough. Not for nearly us. long enough. Um, we we should and could do a whole nother episode on that. Um, but, you know, maybe in the future, uh, because this week we uh, we went over a little something different, a Japanese horror movie by the name of House or Houseu. Yeah, and this is maybe the first real conflict that we've had on the show, which is exciting. And we're going to dive into I, why... I can't love everything, I'm sorry. <laughs> the, the, why this movie divided us and why it's also... Uh, it's it's okay to have these reactions and it's co- okay to be sort of critical about f- this film especially and in, in films in general. Mm-hmm. Um, why I chose House was because this is sort of billed as an art house horror darling uh, where uh, this is sort of the alternative to the, the art house films that are sort of 
perceived to be like you know depressing or in this like existential dread and sad like this is the happy-go-lucky version of avant-garde film that uh people usually expose others to yeah um Um, yeah i mean while most uh horror films that i would consider avant-garde i don't know if this counts but say melancholia uh -hmm. those kind of films make me want to like lie in my bed curled in the fetal position this one made me want to throw things at the wall so in that sense it got me way more amped i'm i'm glad that's a that's a wonderful take and and we're gonna this this episode will be very heavy on ideas of viewing uh which is also exciting to me because that's what i like these episodes to be um the majority of anyway um, but we will go into a bit of history and a synopsis of the film and mm-hmm. do all our classic AHDI stuff that you and the audience have uh, come to love. So let's dive in. Let's dive into some brief history. The film is directed by Nobuhiko Obayashi, um, and it w- and it came out in 1977, a Japanese comedy horror film um, that was also produced by Toho, which is one of the biggest, uh, production companies in all of Japan. It's like one of the big four. And, um, this is kind of one of the first ideas that I want us to cover Mm. is that the Toho first wanted Obayachi to develop a film that was like Jaws because Jaws had recently come out and they said, Hey, we need something like that to get everybody, um, super amped to go see our films. Um, so I want to talk about that. T, how how do you imagine a film like <laughs> a film like House is made from the idea of Jaws? You know. Um. Well, I have to think. Uh, well, back when I was still growing up and being introduced to horror films, Jaws was described to me as a, a gore fest and super frightening. And even at that time, I couldn't have been more than maybe 13 or 14. I thought that was a little bit silly because I was already watching shows where, like, people's heads were getting chopped off and shit like that. Um, yeah, yeah. So I I do see the similarity. House definitely covers the gore aspect, but they, man, they lose it in the story. <laughs> As someone who is afraid of sharks, afraid and also fascinated by sharks... Um, Jaws respectfully was very scary terrified for me. i think it's the word you're looking for oh yeah i'm terrified it's okay i'll admit it but but as someone who saw jaws as a child that movie was terrifying to me absolutely terrifying um which is funny because house is not scary at all which no. is something that we're going to talk about at some point as well it's not even a thriller i don't know what i'd call it oh no no yeah and uh one of the reasons why House is so different than Jaws is because Obayashi discussed a lot of the ideas for the film with his daughter. Um, and he had one quote that I think is interesting where he said, um, adults only think about things they understand. Uh, everything stays on that boring human level while uh, children can come up with things that can't be explained. So I think that's one of the reasons why this idea warped so much over time is that he wanted to submerge it in this world of like the unexplainable. Um, well, which is, you know, well, sure. Um, but if I could, uh, perhaps propose a counter argument to that one, there's a very good reason why most children don't direct movies. 
that's that's true <laughs> yeah i don't know if toho knew about that too because i'm sure they uh may have not been super happy about it but it was funny because uh the film was actually put on hold for two years because uh no director wanted to work on it uh Shocker. weirdly enough <laughs> when it was finished and um they finally let obayashi directed himself and um it stars mostly amateur actors and and at the end of production it was a box office hit uh with the youth apparently but it was very divisive among critics and um the whole world sort of came around to it later on where now it's like one of the most sort of famous uh artsy horror films ever and it's like one of the criterion channel darlings and they promote the the crap out of it every (laughs) every halloween and it's Um, number 116 or 17 on rotten tomatoes for horror movies if that means anything to you if that means anything to anyone these days because you know Rotten Tomatoes is very dubious with ratings and rankings, but mm-hmm. it's at um, least I mean uh, that's yeah. it's at least one hundred and seventeen on the like intern who they had made the list. <laughs> exactly, yeah, the intern who they had compiled the list. Yeah, uh, but you know that's that's all the sort of history that I think is important. I mean, uh, having a film that's this off the wall, which we'll come to explain later, being created by Toho, who is known to work with directors like Ozu and Mitsugushi, and sort of. Um, like the great masters of Japanese cinema is interesting in how sort of experimental and strange this film is that I think that's the biggest takeaway to get from it. But, um, T I'd love to hear, uh, your synopsis of the film or oh, boy. what you took away from the synopsis of the film. Oh boy. Do I have a synopsis for you? Um, before I pop into that, I would just like to briefly revisit something from our last episode. Um, yeah. where if I go back to my notes, um, <clears throat> oh jeez. I think uh Miss Mr Mr Rob you referred to this as my gym jams. Is that correct? I did your I, I did your honor. I did. And the definitions of gym jams in <laughs> the uh Oxford dictionary is uh something that one might sprinkle upon their theoretical ice cream. Is that also not correct, sir? That's correct, your honor. Well, I hate to inform you, but this was most certainly not my gym jams. Uh, this wouldn't, I wouldn't even put this on week old bagels. Oof. Oof. Um, but that is just a personal perspective. I would just like to be very clear that yeah. obviously a lot of other people have different opinions than me, but synopsis. Um, yeah. It's interesting doing a synopsis for a movie like this where plot doesn't mean a thing, but I'm going to give it a go anyway. Um, so let's just start off with our, our cast. I think that's a very good jumping off point. You have gorgeous fantasy, melody, uh, prof, uh, sweet, Mac, and Kung Fu. That actually took way more brain power than I was hoping it would. (laughs) Um, I think part of me has already started blocking this out, and I just watched it, like, last week. But... (laughs) Uh, so you have this inspiring cast of Japanese schoolgirls who I, I would have to say are in their like middle school years. I would I don't think high school, um, yeah. but they're they're supposed to spend summer together at this training camp. Training for what I don't know, uh, but they're gonna go with their hunky teacher. Um, but uh, because Gorgeous's dad is getting remarried, uh, she gets upset and writes to her aunt and says, "Hey, can me and my." six other gal pals hang out with you this summer instead and says sure they go there 
and slowly start getting picked off one by one through a series of sometimes ironic, sometimes weirdly fetishized deaths. And there's a whole bunch of crazy editing and fourth wall breaking, crazy colors and action sequences and soundtracks associated to characters. In that sense, it's very interesting, but for an hour and a half film where the plot doesn't mean anything, I found myself incredibly tired by the end of it. Yeah, and I think that's a fair reaction as well. And we'll go into why that's fair now in uh, the analysis bonanza. And um, I wanted to start with something that uh, bothered you about the film, Mm -hmm. Um, but I think is a really interesting topic to discuss, which is satire. Um, yes. And what what makes a satire um, effective or what makes satire annoying and also the pitfalls of sort of the satire formula, I think, is a really um, interesting avenue to go down. So, so what did you think about the satire in this film? So I'll be honest, watching it the first time, I almost didn't even realize that it was supposed to be satire. I thought it was just a really shitty movie. <laughs> Um, It really wasn't until we started talking afterwards that I started realizing, oh, it is trying to make fun of these tropes. But in doing so, I don't know, obviously a satire has to do it. And when I think satire, I think South Park, um, because that's, Mm -hmm. you know, the one that I've watched the most. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, they, they make the same things, but it's very obviously a joke and maybe... I don't know, maybe it was a cultural gap or maybe an intellectual one in that this movie is trying to say things on levels that I can't quite understand. But I didn't see it as, oh, look at them making fun of this common movie trope. I saw just a mishmash of bullshit thrown together (laughs) and then someone would wink at the camera. Yeah, and so one of the pitfalls that I wanted to talk about is that... um, even though satires are trying to uncover ideas about how ridiculous or stupid things are um, in cinema or in the genre of horror, especially, um, they're still doing them. You know what I mean? Like the sexualization, the one-dimensional characters, the sort of thin plot, the um, sort of ridiculous suspension of belief, like all of those Mm -hmm. things are there. And then I think, it's it's almost like a subjective reaction sometimes whether you connect with those or not and clearly you didn't yeah. connect with those yeah. yeah and i mean hey obviously look on the on second viewing when you introduce characters with names as stupid as that no i'm not going to repeat them again yeah okay i get it it's supposed to be a satire maybe i was in a bad mood when i watched it the first time but <laughs> yeah and for for those at home too if you haven't seen the film uh the film is sort of uh, at the core of the film it's satirizing two different things. It's satirizing one, the the sort of summertime adventure film where uh, certain characters go on a trip and um, they go on sort of ridiculous adventures. A coming of age film, if you will. Right. Yeah. It's satirizing a coming of age movie, but sort of in those parameters. And it's also satirizing all of the horror genre, like all of the trappings of the horror genre um, in 1977 too, you know, pretty early on. And, um, so on the one hand, all of the characters are created with these like ridiculous names to sort of point out that, hey, most people in horror movies are the jock, you're the nerd, you're the blank, you're the blank, you're the sexualized character. And really all of cinema in general, I don't think this film is really just talking about horror. No. It's more talking about just film 
um, in general. Well, to, you, you know. know, this this brings up an interesting uh, an interesting point that I didn't even think about until literally just now. One of my mm-hmm. favorite horror movies of all times, and hey, you can check this out on our Letterbox top ten list, is mm-hmm. Cabin in the Woods, which is another mm-hmm. satirical horror film. Yeah, and they literally put the characters into those roles mm-hmm. of like the jock uh the the whore the virgin yada yada mm-hmm. yada yeah. um so now i'm trying to think why did i like that one so much better than this it might be an aesthetic thing too it could you know be I mean? um yeah it was significantly yeah. less campy maybe it was just that the campiness of it all that really took me out of it yeah and that's that's something i wanted to talk about as well that sort of leans into the satire conversation is that camp inherently is satirical it's sort of upending traditional aesthetics of art or high art or you know you know themes of modernism or so if you want to really get theoretical and camp as an aesthetic style is sort of appealing to a lot of people because of its bad taste or ironic value i'm reading that right from wiki well <laughs> glad one of yeah. us is um, do you think that's just because of like us watching it as people who never really grew up with campy things that it's mm-hmm. harder for some of our us to watch? Definitely. I mean, I think I I came to camp very late. I think growing up it really bothered me because I think in my brain I was like, why are they intentionally making this look bad? Mm-hmm. Like I didn't really like understand the old Batman it. shows. Yeah, exactly. Or I didn't really understand eras of cinema or tv because i didn't really have an have an idea of how to make those things or the technological limitations of different eras of of art but um i think as i've grown older i've come around on camp um especially seeing house to be honest with you house was one of those films where i it was one of the things that i was like oh i get why camp is interesting here but it, it's definitely always been something that has annoyed me until very recently. I'd say, like, within the last maybe even, like, two years. Yeah, I would say maybe I'm just... Maybe I, I, as someone who didn't go through a film studies course, never really got that, like, that camp booster shot, to put it into vaccine mm-hmm. terms. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. that's, that's all the rage right, right, right meow. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why watching it just inherently puts me on edge. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was something I couldn't get past the entire film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's and that's totally fair. It's I think it's definitely taste based, and it's at the end of the day, camp is also a tool for Obayashi, right? Like he's using camp as a lever to sort of uncover these things about cinema that he thinks is ridiculous. I mean, like, um, allegedly, you know. he's using it as a tool. I'd like to point out that these are all things that you're saying he's doing, but. Yeah. If you just watch the film, mm-hmm. I feel like unless you put your own opinions in there and say, yeah, he's definitely trying to do that using this, like, how, how are you going to know? Right. I, mean, I think that's where sort of analysis comes in. I think that's sort of the core of analysis where um, you're not necessarily saying that, oh, this is the director that's saying that, but you, this is what I'm getting from the film as well. I think there's, you know... That's a that's a deep conversation too. That's at like the core of what film studies is. But Obiashi also talks about this, um, about the film because the film he's you know been interviewed about it mm. many times okay. and things like that. So he so he's talked about this too. But I think this goes well into what you're saying about aesthetics, uh, sort of the formal qualities versus the narrative in this film. Like, um, 
how do you feel inherently about narrative taking a back seat to the technical aspects of of a film as someone who never really studied the technical aspects mm-hmm. i i see the appeal after yeah. having talked about it with you for a certain amount of time but i think for the average moviegoer if you're going to spend an hour and a half watching a movie and that movie doesn't have a substantial plot it's going to feel very tedious um i i generally rate the movies that we watch for this podcast by how often i look at say my phone to check the time while i'm watching it and for the most part i never do i'm always Mm -hmm. like oh wow that was like an hour or an hour and a half geez that flew by this one i think i was checking every 10 minutes because i knew (laughs) if i looked away it didn't matter Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i think that's one thing that sort of um divides i don't know people like me that's such a weird phrase but but people like me who what do you mean you people (laughs) yeah like like i'm definitely a formalist uh, of like film where i'm mostly looking at um the style of editing and the cinematography and and you know what angles they're choosing to use like the camera placement like you know color design and um how they're capturing motion how they're communicating they're trying to communicate ideas like these are the things that sort of i'm looking at uh when i look at really any film and i think house is so rich for that but i can totally see why um if you're someone who loves narrative about cinema you don't have to be you know they're super famous film scholars who just talk about narrative all day for them i imagine house to be a slog like you're saying Mm -hmm. you know because the narrative takes a huge backseat to the formal qualities yeah i mean you can Um, sum up the narrative of this film with sad girl and friends go to haunted house haunted house kills them man turns into bananas yeah yeah and there's definitely things that are boiling under the surface that don't come out um so well Well, like there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of things about Obayashi talking about um, his anti-war ideals and things like that. And mm-hmm. that's something that's rich when you go and research it more. But I don't think that's necessarily something that is highlighted right. as, as much as it could be in the film, to be honest with it, you. It comes across as a side dish that didn't have nearly yeah. enough on it. Like, if you got a burger and a side of fries, but they only gave you, like, two or three fries. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it yeah. was there, but it it didn't mean anything they mentioned it a few times and you could have been like oh and that's the reason that the old woman is eating schoolgirls." but it i mean yeah. it, that wasn't the point and it yeah. made it so clear it wasn't the point i i just couldn't care about it yeah and behind the thin story to me is like this is gonna sound kind of cheesy but it's like a festival of incredibly interesting technique you're right it really did sound sort of... pretty cheesy yeah i know but it's you know this it's how i genuinely feel about the film and i think this sort of i want to get into the actual quality so we're not just talking about these are the qualities i want to get kind of granular but um before we do that i i want to talk about something that your your mother actually said don't you Um, bring my mother into this (laughs) or my my auntie stacy uh that i thought was really interesting because (laughs) we shared the same thought but we it was negative on her end and positive on mine where um, she said that the film felt like uh, a bunch of techniques that were overdone were sort of thrown into a blender 
and the blender was put on the high setting um, and it just went crazy. And I think like we were talking to our film editor, Brett, um, and he he talks about this film like um, don't you bring my editor a bunch of this <laughs> a bunch of techniques sort of brought together and he like puts his hands together and rumples it up like it's a piece of paper and like throws it around and um into a, a presentation that to me is like so unlike any other film i've ever seen other than other obayashi films to be honest with you like this is right and she and she meant it as an insult to the film um yeah fun fact yeah. i actually we actually did watch this together um until recently i was up north um taking care taking care of her after uh, uh some surgery which is why this episode is coming out a week later than expected mm-hmm. um but yeah we watched this together and sh- she was more vocal about her distaste for this than i am <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I was texting her a, a little bit about it, and she just was not having anything I was saying. No. <laughs> it was so clear. <laughs> I was I would text her this, like, paragraph, and then she'd be like, nah. She'd be like, nah, that's not it at all. But so it, for like, you, was... the blender is a good thing. It turned it into yeah. a smoothie of sorts instead of a mishmash yeah. of junk. To me, the, to me, the blender is why this film is incredibly special, because... Um, when someone would look at this film, like, I can't imagine reading the script. I'm actually, okay, some inside baseball into my life. Did they have a script? I imagine they did. I would, I would definitely have to research more. I'm sure they did. Cause I mean, they're working with Toho as well. I'm sure they're like, can we see a script or something? But, um, I'm reading a ton of scripts for Stowe Story Labs because their application deadline just ended and they're, they're going through their applications. But we can't um, talk about that. So- so I'm really I'm really into reading scripts right now. It's like I've I've read so many in the past week, but mm-hmm. um, uh, I would love to see the script for this film. But that blender quality to me makes this the mo- maybe the most unique film that I've ever seen. Um, and let's go into the reason why. So first, uh, the editing and the framing of this film is very interesting to me because the editing has this sort of bouncing quality to it. It has this incredible momentum where. Um, especially in shot reverse shot where it's very quick right like you'll see someone's face cut see someone's face cut then there'll be like a little more time of duration and then it'll be even faster like it's always injecting this sense of energetic rhythm into the film which i find really interesting i'll be honest the only point where i objectively noticed that was Mm -hmm. during the scene when melody is playing on the piano and the shot reverse shot is matching the pace of the metronome yeah, I mean that's that's a great uh, sequence to 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 point out too. I think I think about um, I think about like all of Kung Fu's sequences um, because as Who she's doesn't? doing her crazy spins and flips and kicks and stuff, um, the camera is sort of panning all over the place and it's a little blurry and um, it's cutting. It looks like, like it's a like Marvel movie in how it's cutting. What? Uh, it looks like a Marvel movie fight scene, which is to say so many cuts you can't actually tell what's happening and thus the yeah. they don't have to be too accurate with it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a great comparison. I agree. And I think um, something that also helps not just momentum, I'd say, but um, focus, I guess, is the framing of the film. There are all these sort of pinhole uh, camera angles I don't know if angle is the right word, but um, they look like something from early cinema. If you you know see like a Chaplin film or something, where I mean, um, I'll frame... take your word for that one. I haven't yeah. seen too many early cinema films. Well, it's like yeah, so it's like when the frame goes all black instead of a little tiny circle right in the middle of the frame, like on someone's yeah. face, and it does that a lot. 
And I think that's it's a technique that is so uh, misplaced or like anachronistic or something like that in the 70s that um, it adds this sort of layer of of uh, like surrealness to the film, you know, to me. Sure. I mean, that and also the crazy color saturation that they would have in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed that they shot a lot of these things through like these crazy silky gauze curtain things or mm-hmm. through windows. Like they made a point yeah. to do it through different lenses. I didn't know if that was supposed to say something, but after about a half hour, I figured out, no, it probably doesn't mean anything. (laughs) Yeah, to me, it's about visual variety, and it's also about um, embedding a sense of, like, distortion into the film. Like, they they shoot so much through, like, glass, Mm -hmm. um, which I find interesting, and it sort of warps the world around it where it feels like a fever dream. Um, And it also, to me, it keeps my eyes awake. Like, I sometimes try to have trouble watching films where the visual style is so monochrome the whole time. And this is a film that's just like, if it was colors, it would be like all colors of the rainbow in regards to like technique. You know what I mean? And, and that, 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 you know, it's a super colorful film. All you have to do is sort of look at um, the poster of, of the house, which is like, it's the cat blown up into this like orange uh oni or like oh or something right um i suppose that was an important part of the synopsis that i kind of missed there is a cat and it's everywhere (laughs) and it's either a witch or a demon or something um yeah but it's not important there's a cat Uh, my one question is throughout the film they make a big point of the cat being white its name is like blanche or something blanche i don't know um Mm. But the cat on the poster is orange. Can you please explain why? Because that pissed me off. <laughs> so I think it's orange because it jumps out and it's like a very vivid shade of orange. There's a lot of orange in this film. Would to you be, call it a, to be honest. like a burnt orange? Um, yeah. Perhaps a tiger stripe orange? Um, yeah. And I think it embodies how vivid the color palette is in this film. Uh, it transforms so much from the beginning where it's all these sort of nice pastels and um, these very inviting color palettes to the end where it's like dark reds and, and it's black and like it's very, uh, um, what's the word? Grim? It's not scary. Yeah, That's it, something we'll talk about at the end. Yeah, it's but, not uh, scary. Um, actually, and yeah. to go kind of a little further on that, um, something I noticed in the beginning was it was a lot more like kind of like daydreamy palettes. Like, yeah, more pastels yeah. in the beginning, and I wondered if that was because they were focusing on, god damn it, you're making me say it, Gorgeous's <laughs> storyline. Um, yeah. And then it slowly got darker as it progressed to kind of more subdued tones during mm-hmm. the second act, if there was one. And then by the end, yeah, it's it's just all, like, huge red... Um, you know, because the house is filling up with blood when the disembodied yeah. uh, f- legs of Kung Fu kicked a cat. Yeah, I think it's a way to also lull us into a false sense of security, too. Like, when you see all of those inviting colors, uh, in my mind, when I first saw this movie, I was like, oh, this is going to be like a bubbly journey. Um, and I, of course, I knew it was a horror movie. I wasn't an idiot, but like, because I'd done research on it before, but... Uh, I still had this feeling like, oh, this is going to be like a fun time for a bit. And I think that's an interesting way to put that idea in the viewer where in the beginning they're not 
immediately like oh this is a horror universe like it's a cartoon really it's right. more like scooby-doo in the beginning than it is you know the grudge or something like that. right and and they use that like kind of like lullaby-esque soundtrack uh yeah, for gorgeous yeah. i hate saying her name god damn it um <laughs> And and it's playing in the background like almost constantly whenever she's on yeah. on the screen, and that too kind of sets the mood for a more relaxed, um, I mean, just less intense film. Yeah, a lot of this film is about tone. Like a lot, I think most of the technique, um, other than being kind of formal and and interesting in that way, is all about tone and setting tone within. Uh, the like imagined space like um the sound kind of uh undulates between this like funky 70s um rock instrumental uh to uh this sort of manic uh jittery music by the end like it oh, has yeah. this um like you were talking about gorgeous's soundtrack <sighs> which is very melodic and lullaby-esque you know it was um, so 70s it hurt yeah yeah and then that's the thing i think the sound is very unique in this film too because it changes so much but it transforms like you're saying from a lullaby to like a manic uh uh horror rave by the end of it yeah you know? like i would describe it as a horror rave or at least the yeah. soundtrack nothing else <laughs> yeah and i think you know this is this doesn't have to really do with that idea but i lo- i th- i think kung fu's soundtrack is one of the funniest part of this film to me because it's like it's just so out of place and ridiculous and, one of the only parts uh, of this that made me laugh yeah yeah it's it, and for people who haven't seen the film too it's um describe what happens when kung fu goes on her action sequences to you um uh, yeah uh whenever she does anything remotely kung fu-esque it goes into this like super energetic like it feels like they just googled kung fu sounds and pasted it into the movie it's weird it's kind of funny it's perhaps the only positive thing i have to say about this movie or it's like a cop show theme song or something like that um and uh, something we haven't we covered too is that kung fu is sort of um an important part of the like satirical framework of this film because uh Something that I I sort of thought about it on the second second of viewing is that um, in a lot of other horror movies, and you've seen more horror movies than I have, so maybe you can speak to this too. One or is two. that um, uh, someone's in like a haunted mansion? Let's say, let's say we're Scooby Doo in the Cyber Chase, and we're downloaded into a horror universe, and we're sitting there yeah. in a mansion playing Yahtzee or something, and um, nobody else is in the house. It's just for some reason we're you know playing Yahtzee alone. Sounds more like uh, a dream I've probably had, but continue. <laughs> Yeah, and a door slams at somewhere in the house, and it's only us there. There could be nobody else, um, and we just go, oh, whatever. It's probably the wind or something, but the horror viewer is like, that's uh, of course it's a ghoul or a goblin, but in this film, a door slamming that denotes some danger is like a log flying in the air that Kung Fu is trying to cut for firewood, and they're trying to attack her, and she like does a backflip and and does a sidekick and kicks it out of the air and then she just goes back to her normal thing and she's like oh that was weird yeah without so saying a like, goddamn you know, word right and it's like it's that idea um to the nth degree which i think is a lot of part of this film is that every trope of horror is hyperbolized as much as it possibly could be right you know, and, and when you're saying it like that i do see them doing it does it make me like it more no i think it actually yeah. makes me feel vindictive somehow yeah well that's um i'm i'm 
curious to hear about how you think of this as a horror movie fan satirizing these tropes. Like when when you're watching a horror movie, are you always aware of of these like arcs and tools and things like that? Well, I mean, yes. Um yeah. and I think that's part of what lets me enjoy them. Uh, because I don't like go into the mind of a character in these films and being like, oh yeah, it's it's pretty spooky. I'm just like, oh yep, there's that cla- <laughs> there's that classic jump scare. Yeah. What's next? Uh, you gonna see it in the mirror or something? But I don't know. Um, see, this has me going back to thinking about Cabin in the Woods and how they mm-hmm. use this. Uh, yeah. and when a character in that film was like, yeah, we should all stick together. Because splitting up is really fucking stupid. Uh, yeah. The like unseen agents immediately like released a nerve gas, and he was like, "Actually, no, we should split up." And the and the guys in the in the booth were like, "Oh, thank goodness." Yeah. Um, yeah. But like you know, they at least gave an explanation for it. They made it kind of funny. I like that. Whereas yeah. this one is just there is a, a door slamming, a flying mm-hmm. a flying log, a girl gets. Yeah turned into a naked doll and they're all just like well that's kind of weird but i don't know yeah that's why i find interesting about this too is that um for as hyperbolic and in your face this movie is i wouldn't say it's very like handholdy like would you think it's handholdy no not in the slightest Yeah. yeah which is interesting too for something that's so garish too you'd think it would be both garish and also kind of i think it's garish for the time i i I think our um our viewing is definitely skewed by what we've been exposed to mm-hmm. already. During the 70s, yeah. yeah, this was probably pretty extreme. Oh my god, when this came out, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine being a movie goer and seeing this film uh, in the 70s. That would have just blown my effing mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, there's something else about the film that I think we should talk about, which is energy, which is kind of like a subjective... I don't know. Is it subjective? I don't know. But uh, I, I love the energy. <laughs> I love the energy of this film because it's so feverish. Um, it makes me feel like I have a hundred and five degree fever um, in a good way. But I don't think it was in a good way for you. I think it wore you out, right? Um, actually, the opposite. Because I don't yeah. think it really took on this energy until maybe the last yeah. fifteen minutes. And at that point, I knew it was close to being done, and mm-hmm. so. It was like a sigh of relief, like, okay, I've made it this far, it's speeding up, I can make it through the rest. Yeah, yeah. It speeds up so much at the end that, um, like, uh, in the beginning of the film, the deaths are sort of spread out, and the aunt is sort of uh, doing these fourth wall breaks, and you're winking at the camera. Yeah, it has time to show her dancing with the skeleton in the background. And uh, it just sort of devolves into unadulterated violence by the end, which is a sort of interesting pacing arc. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think one of the last uh, ideas of viewing that I wanted to hit is that uh, (laughs) when I first was going to watch this film, I was nervous. I'm going to be honest with you. I had... I had heard this film was like, oh, a very famous Japanese horror film. That's really all I knew about it. And I heard from Brett that he's like, oh, you'll love this film. It's a Japanese horror film. And I'm like, I'm such a scaredy cat. I'm going to lose my mind. This movie is not scary no. at all. No, it is not a you horror know? film. Like, I know that we said that when it came out, yeah, people were probably pissing their pants. But that's only because of the gore. 
And even that is is done worse than Jaws, I would say. It's very obvious where the green screen cuts are, and someone's not actually being, like, dismembered or anything. Eaten by a piano. Exactly. That happens. Yeah. Well, that's why I I kind of want to talk to Matt about this or some, like, horror historian. Like, what what entails a horror movie? Is it... Because when I... Growing up, to me, it was just like, oh, is this movie scary? Oh, it has to be horror. But I feel like a like someone who's a deep fan of horror theory or something like that um, would have a more complex answer. I have no idea though. Like what do you, you've seen more horror movies than me. What do you think is like when you see a movie, you go, Oh, this is horror. Yeah. Well, I think that the answer for me is, is there tension? And I think that's why so frequently thrillers get classified as horror movies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because you do have that same sort of tension but I think the difference between a horror movie and a thriller is in a horror movie, there's a, there's a feeling of helplessness. Like, yes, there's tension, but there's nothing you can do about it. Where in a thriller, the bad guy has a gun, but the action hero is Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and he can karate chop a bullet. <laughs> yeah. You know, that any horror... I wonder if he has been in a horror movie. Um, has off the, the top of my head, movie? I can't think of one, but he's been in so many movies, he must have. I think another example I have of that sort of tension you're talking about is I saw recently um, Blood in Black Lace from Mario Bava, who's mm. um, a, a famous Italian filmmaker, especially for his films being like very colorful. Uh, and it's not a scary movie, but it definitely has the tension that you're talking about where every space feels so vulnerable. Uh, even if someone's like in an apartment that's locked, you still, you still feel like something could happen to them at every single moment which is i i think that's that tension you're mm-hmm. talking it's about it's too, that right? like ed, uh, like you're sitting on the edge of your seat just like waiting yeah. for something to go wrong kind of tension that i think is what gives horror movies its names uh, but yeah. no this that's this did not give me that feel for sure yeah so i guess that's the episode that's the episode everybody uh cool. thanks for coming along on this journey with us yeah uh, we uh, want to we, we want to squeeze as many people into the drive-in as possible as we can with co- with COVID restrictions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you we have to stay six feet apart. I'm sorry. There's no, I want to well, give in our you universe. A hug. There's no COVID, so in our imaginations, hopefully <sighs> that'd be uh, nice. And uh, you know, next week we're, we're we have some big plans. We're gonna have more guests on going towards the end of the season. Uh, and this has been very fun, and I'm looking forward to watching more out there films. Yeah. Uh, um, and I hope that if people who are listening to this um, don't take my criticism of the film to mean you shouldn't watch this. I think you absolutely should watch this, even if you're hesitant, if for no other reason than to, you know, give yourself a a better understanding of what it is you are looking for in a film. Like, yeah, maybe this isn't your your Jim Jams, uh, <laughs> but this might might help you figure out what is your gym jams i say go out there and find your gym jams i c- i couldn't have said it any better and this is actually uh houses on the criterion channel sponsor uh, cough, us criterion. Cough, criterion if you want to sponsor us we love you um we love you and we'd love to have you sponsor but uh it's on the criterion channel go check it out uh and you can check us all out at split tooth media check out our other episodes check out our interviews check out our podcast split picks just got uh uh revived and um i was on an episode with uh my cool bud bennett glaze talking about stan brackage so check out that episode of split picks on um 
commingled containers versus delicacies of molten horse and apps. It's a good uh, time. So that's my all one around. part of the episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll catch you next time. You've been listening to a Split Tooth Media presentation. You can find us on Letterboxd as Arthouse Drive-In and on Twitter at Arthouse Inn. That's right, we can't change it. Feel free to join us in our little cars we talk about films each week, give or take. Probably. <laughs> <laughs>